So here in the foreword of the Muqaddimah, Ibn Khaldun starts to tell us about uh, history and how widely cultivated it is among everybody. It seems to be, uh, to him, a very popular pursuit, but also uh, one with mixed results because, as he says, you know, some smart people engage in it, but also stupid people engage in it, right? And he talks about how it's a kind of a general public activity. It serves to entertain large crowded gatherings uh, and brings us to an understanding of human affairs. It shows how changing conditions affected human affairs, how certain dynasties come to occupy an ever wider space in the world, and how they settled the earth until they heard the call and their time was up. Uh, then he goes on to say the inner meaning of history, on the other hand, involves speculation and, attempt, and an attempt to get at the truth. Subtle explanation of the causes and origins of existing things and deep knowledge of the how and why of events. History, therefore, is firmly rooted in philosophy. It deserves to be accounted in a branch, a branch of philosophy. And we discussed the philosopher paradigm of social discourse from Al-Farabi and others. And the idea here that philosophy is the kind of inner meaning of what is uh, a social and religious and sort of cultural construct, uh, which is a metaphor or a symbolic rendition or expression sometimes, when it's correctly done, of the inner truth that philosophy supposedly is. And that was, you know, understood in terms of religion, really. I mean, the idea there was that True religion was a kind of symbolic representation of true philosophy. Uh, so that philosophy, or according to their claim, philosophical, not theory, because for them, this, this was actually, you know, demonstrative knowledge. So the kind of knowledge that is demonstra demonstrated through philosophical uh, methods, demonstrative methods, which for them lead to sure and certain knowledge, which is grasped by the intellect, is expressed or symbolized and some images which are meant to make that truth something which is accessible to the masses and the general public. And here we have Ibn Khaldun, it seems to echo this. So he talks about history, which is a discipline which is widely cultivated, right? He says both the learned and the ignorant are able to understand it. For on the surface, history is no more than information about political events, dynasties, and occurrences of the remote past, elegantly presented and spiced with proverbs. So it's something which is palatable to the general public. And then he goes on to talk about the inner meaning of history, which he then says, uh, it is firmly rooted in philosophy. Well, why is it that? Because he says it involves speculation in an attempt to get at the truth, subtle explanation of the causes and origins of existing things, and deep knowledge of the how and, and why of events. So he's really describing the, 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 the kind of knowledge that Falsifa aspired to, this kind of demonstrative knowledge of things in terms of its causes. And now he's giving a place in that scheme for history, which it didn't apparently have before. History should be a branch of philosophy. That resonates with what we saw him say before, right? About how we should judge the veracity of historical reports by using the uh, facts of existence, by using our knowledge of, of, of the nature of things, what he calls the facts of existence.
and then we we saw that theory at work when he talked about why Alexander the Great could not have been lowered into the sea in a box, and his explanation of why a person would always die if they were to be lowered in the sea in a box like that. And then we noticed that his explanation of why that's the case was based on an obsolete scientific theory, which we don't consider to be valid today. And we discussed, remember, the, some of the, uh, the epistemological questions that raises for Ibn Khaldun's um, aspiration to use that kind of what he would call philosophical knowledge of nature to evaluate and authenticate historical reports and ascertain what actually happened in history. But here he's doing a lot of critique of, you know, what happens with history, what, how history is usually done. He says that little effort is being made to get at the truth. The critical eye, as a rule, is not sharp. Errors and unfounded assumptions are closely allied in familiar elements in historical information. Blind trust in tradition is an inherited trait in human beings. Occupation with the scholarly disciplines on the part of those who have no rights is widespread. But the pasture of stupidity is unwholesome for mankind. No one can stand up against the authority of truth, and the evil of falsehood is to be fought with enlightening speculation. The reporter merely dictates and passes on the material. It takes critical insight to sort out the hidden truth. It takes knowledge to lay bare truth and polish it so that critical insight may be applied to it. So we have almost a kind of a division of labor here. Someone who is merely a reporter and another a wholly different activity which involves taking the material that the reporter passes on and applying critical insight, as he calls it, to that, to find out not just uh, what the reporter reports, but to try to find out some hidden truth that that report indicates. So there is a sort of interesting relation between the report of a reporter, the narrative of a narrator about a past event, the relation between that report and the hidden truth, what he calls the hidden truth, which is analogous to the relation that the philosopher uh, asserted to hold between metaphysical truth as understood by the philosopher and the reports of, of religion, right? The religious discourse, which is supposed to be, in their view, a kind of figurative representation of philosophical truth. Here, it's almost as if the historical report is a kind of a figurative interpretation or, you know, some kind of a reflection of the hidden truth, but not actually the truth of history itself, something which needs to be used as a piece of evidence rather than just taken at face value and, and then examined with a critical eye, as he says. To lay truth bare and polish it so that critical insight may be applied to it. Of course, the big difference here is that the philosopher believed really that the truth uh, and knowledge was always about eternal, unchanging realities, and that history being, you know, something temporal and constantly changing was not really appropriate object of knowledge, or at least it was very problematic as an object of knowledge. And here, Ibn Khaldun is making a past event, which is clearly something temporal, uh, history as actually the object of proper knowledge, right? The object of some kind of demonstrative knowledge. So that's sort of an interesting possible difference. Certainly he's uh, trying to make 
history such an object or understand history in such a way that it can be an object of knowledge uh, in terms of the falsifa framework of what knowledge is and what can be known. What do you say here that the later historians were all tradition bound and dull of nature and intelligence, or at any rate did not try to be not dull. They merely copied the old historians and followed their examples. They disregarded the changes in customs and in the customs of nations and races that the passing of time had brought about. Thus, they presented historical information about dynasties and stories of events from the earlier period as mere forms without substance, blades without scabbards, as knowledge that must be considered ignorance because it is not known what of its it is extraneous and what is genuine. So the key here that's interesting, and it starts to sort of now hint on what's going to come later, is he's concerned about the changes in the conditions and customs of nations and races. Over time, customs of nations and races change, and that those customs constitute conditions, right, or the context uh, in which any kind of report from history is understood. So what happens with these older historians is since they simply copy down what was reported from before, they don't think about how uh, the significance of that event that they are having the report of may have been different in the time in which it happened than it would be in their time because of the differences in the conditions and customs of nations and races that that event happened among. And so that is a result of fixating on the big events, you know, like the wars or the personalities, rather than maybe mon more mundane things like what were the actual customs of, of the society in which the event happened, things which may be harder to know. Uh, and we already saw that the hot humor theory, right? The theory about why people would die if they go under the water in a box. And we saw that it's an example of the historical customs and conditions uh, that he talks about that actually change over time. So, so he, he deploys this theory, which he takes to be the facts of existence about why people die when they would when they go under the water in boxes, right? And why fish die when you take them out of the water. And that theory is obsolete. So we have to classify that scientific theory as one of those changing customs and and uh, cultural artifacts, let's say, or cultural constructs that different societies have and that change over time. Exactly an example of what he's talking about when he talks about the kinds of changes that historians often ignore. So he's going to talk about philosophy a little bit again here. The writing of history requires numerous sources and greatly varied knowledge. It also requires a good speculative mind and thoroughness. Possession of these two qualities leads the historian to the truth and keeps him from slips and errors. If he trusts historical information in its plain transmitted form and has no clear knowledge of the principles resulting from custom, the fundamental facts of politics, the nature of civilization, or the conditions governing human social organization, and if further he does not evaluate remote or ancient material through comparison with near or contemporary material, he often cannot avoid stumbling and slipping and deviating from the high road of truth. Historians, clarion commentators, and leading transmitters have committed frequent errors in the stories and events they report. 
They accepted them in the plain transmitted form without regard for its value. They did not check them with the principles underlying such historical situations, nor did they compare them with similar material. Also, they did not probe more deeply with the yardstick of philosophy, with the help of knowledge of the nature of things, or with the help of speculation and historical insight. Therefore, they strayed from the truth and found themselves lost in the desert of baseless assumptions and error. So there's a lot here, and some of these factors we see uh, him mention are things which actually change, and that the historian has to be aware of those factors because of the fact that they change, right? And some other factors that he mentions here are things which he takes to be um, unchanging. And that the historian who's a philosophical historian, who's a critical historian, has to be aware of these unchanging things and on the basis of these unchanging principles, uh, make his judgments about the historical reports that he has in front of him. Uh, so, for example, he talks about, again, about the conditions. Uh, he says that he has no clear knowledge of the principles resulting from custom. Right, but he, but we know that he said already that customs change over time, and that the historian has to be aware of those changes in customs. So, if there are principles that result from custom, then those principles will also change, and the historian has to be aware of the contingency of those principles and the uh, the sense in, in which they can change. But then he talks about the fundamental facts of politics, the nature of civilization or the conditions governing human social organization. And these are very universal, so these appear to be things that don't change. So however uh, customs change, uh, and the principles that resulting from customs would also change, it seems like those customs would change according to some other principles that don't change. And those, I guess, would, would be these, the fundamental facts of politics, nature of civilization, and the conditions that govern human social organization, right? Because the customs have to do with human social organization. So if there are conditions which govern human social organization, then it would seem to be that at some point we get, we, we're going to get bottom out and find some principles that don't change and that govern everything that it does, if it's possible to actually use the yardstick of philosophy and knowledge of the nature of things to ascertain whether things that did change changed in the way that historians, historical reports have reported 